Trump talks about that kind of openly. Like, you know, that we should use government to punish enemies. And, you know, since we have a two party system and it's very much kind of a pendulum swing and and, and the and the each side learns from each other, it's bad tendencies or it's, you know, or or successful, temporarily successful tendencies. They start to ape each other. So I'm afraid that we're in the spiral where each side is going to pretty openly use government as a tool to punish the other guys. from the launch pad. Bringing blue collar to your cell tower. The rock and roll libertarian himself. It's time to blast off with Johnny Rocket. Hey, this is Blast Off with Johnny Rocket, and I am Johnny Rocket with my Ray of Truth, Miss Rayleigh Lightheart. Hey, hey, yeah. How's it going, Johnny? Good. So you sound like you're in a bathroom or something, Rayleigh. I don't know what's Do going I? on. On my end, I have no idea, but it sounds like hmm. you're in a bathroom. And you could be in a bathroom for all we know. And I'm, I'm not sure that lazy, Johnny. Views just went up about a hundred, hundred times now. I mean, I'm sure we have like twenty or thirty more listeners because you're in the bathroom. <laughs> For all There's those perverts out, out there, there. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, <laughs> just so everyone knows, Raylene and I, we okay. So, Raylene, we, we're starting a new thing, and it's called Big Bang, and it's going to be probably out here in the next month, or if it is not out already. Um, but basically what we're doing is a panel regarding libertarian topics, ideas, and it's not going to be this show where we're interviewing fine guests that we have today, but we are going to be talking about just ideas and, and it's not going to be an interview show. It's just going to be more of a, an open discussion. So I am super excited about that. Raylene, how do you feel about this? You know how I, well, first of all, I should say I'm really excited. Oh, we know you'd say that. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, I, I have to say that I think that roundtable discussions are always really fun and they're very organic. It, it's it's always good to hear a few different kinds, types of libertarians talking about one topic. They all have different points of view and, and a lot to pull in and, and it, things really build on those conversations. They're really fun. They do. They do. Okay. So Raylene, are you ready for our guest? This is one of our biggest guests. I'm really excited about this one. Very stoked. Let's do it. I am stoked. I'm excited. Matt Welch is the editor at large at Reason Magazine, the libertarian magazine of free minds and free markets. He served as Reason's editor-in-chief from 2008 to 2016. He is co-author along with Nick Gillespie of the 2011 book, The Declaration of Independence, How Libertarian Politics Can Fix What's Wrong with America, which Tyler Cohen called the up-to-date statement of libertarianism. Welch also wrote in 2007 book, McCain, the myth of a maverick. All right, Raylene, prepare for liftoff. Copy that, Johnny. Covers, tie-downs, and grounding cables. Removed as required. Communications connected. Check. Preamps in the green. Check. Cold beer. Double check. Thrusters are hot. Raylene, are you ready to rock? All systems go, Johnny. Let's blast off with Mad Thank you so much for being here on the show, man. 
I absolutely love the production values on your uh, liftoff rocket. That makes me uh, super psyched to uh, finally see that Apollo 11 documentary everyone's talking about. Yes, yes, this is what we do. We we take people to orbit, and then sometimes we leave them there. Sometimes we leave them there if they're not good guests. But they're no, not libertarian sir, enough. We're not libertarian them. enough. We're gonna like leave you. No, we're not leaving I you. I know sir. my future. <laughs> Well, welcome to the show. And, you. you know, again, I have to give credit to my wife. She uh, actually talked to you in Massive Two Shits. And uh, she's like, Matt, it's just great. He's a cool dude. You handled that debate really well for the presidential candidates. And I'm like, you know what, babe, while you're out there, why don't you, you know, throw me a bone. Get get, get the goddamn man from Reason Magazine on a goddamn show. And uh, she was just like, I'll see what I can do. I'll at least give you his number so we can make a connection. And then hence, here we are. So I'll again, say this about your better half as uh, she's funny as hell, which oh, I know yes, is no news to you. But for those of you out there uh, in capital L libertarian land uh, who are thinking about uh, the presidential race of, of which she is a preliminary uh, high contender. Uh, she's funny as hell. Uh, but uh, I, I hope I hope to see that Kim uh, in the next debate, the one that I talk to afterwards. Because not that's Kim Jong Il or Um or whatever the hell you want, Kim yeah. Roth, not Kim from North Korea. Let's yes. just be clear on that. Okay, good. So we're on the same oh, sheet of music. Just kidding. Yeah. So let's jump right into it. How would you explain your political ideology in a few sentences? And what are some of the core values that drive the politics that you support, Mr. Welch? You know, I, I came about, so I would describe myself basically as a libertarian, even a Reason Magazine libertarian. Mm-hmm. I used to uh, have a lot of uh, tortured self-descriptions. Um, I probably <laughs> self-identify as a journalist more than anything else, uh, mm-hmm. for which libertarianism is actually really helpful because – um, and uh, this this I found to be more true the further away I am from libertarian media. Uh, and that might sound strange, but, uh, you know, when I worked at the L.A. Times from 2006, 2007, I was a assistant editorial pages editor uh, where you see up close how civic politics and policy and governance is done. Uh, you realize two things. Uh, one, oh, my God, the world is super statist. Yeah. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, but also that. Um, it's kind of helpful to have these uh, these sort of priors. So uh, libertarians, uh, however you capitalize the L, are going to be kind of on the outside looking in, sure. uh, generally speaking. They, they don't speak the same language. They're not part usually of the same uh, power structures. And at their heart, they're, they're thinking in terms of the exercise of government power, which uh, as odd as it is for many uh normies to understand um <laughs> yeah yeah the, uh, the people who make politics and write and talk about politics don't see that uh no, don't don't no. view things through that lens usually it's not a That's it's not true. a standard yeah. way of doing it so i've always for instance so i wrote about a book about john mccain that you referenced uh and i did so in part uh because i was a fan uh, of his uh, first two books is uh, essentially his uh, life uh, Vietnam memoir and then his kind of memoir of trying to run for president. He's a very funny writer, well, along with uh, Mark Salter, his, his co-author. And he's this sort of larger than life character in American politics. And so it sparked my interest in the guy. And as I was reading up on him, I'm like, wow, 
of all, I mean, and he'd run for president in 2000 by this time and, and like charmed the pants off of kind of literally uh, the uh, journalistic establishment. Um, and there was almost nothing about his own views of government power, his sense of ideology. There was just this sort okay. of like, ah, oh, he's just he's there solving problems. He's just the man. He's the maverick. One of the things that libertarians uh, do to, you know, annoy the rest of the world is to point out that, hey, you know what? Saying that you don't have an ideology is actually an ideology. Uh, you know, the, the idea <laughs> yeah, that yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. contrarian <laughs> do something, you know, whenever yeah. there's a big crisis and you need to hit the do something button. And this happens, especially in foreign policy. John McCain's been in the middle of it. So um, long way of saying like. You know, I described myself as a journalist first. Uh, I, for years, I was, you know, described myself as a, a Central Europe, European style liberal uh, because I'd lived in Central Europe in the 1990s and uh, covered the kind of post communist world. And there was this category of, uh, you know, political dissidents, anti communists who then got into power. Václav Havel is the kind of uh, the embodiment of it who in an American context, you'd say, oh, they're a liberal, but they're like super duper anti-commie and have huge critiques of state power that right. you don't expect on the political left in America. So uh, I was trying to, you know, uh, uh, create this category that doesn't really exist in America and realize that, you know what, that's just, that's just basically yeah, libertarian. Yeah, it, but that's the thing, though. It's like the lexicon changes as, you know, if we move from culture to culture, I mean, you know, we could look back historically and say we're classical liberals, but like by modern day standards, we we're not even close in some regards, um, maybe on a few things, but m mostly no. And I, I just find that fascinating. And speaking of McCain, I mean, like I'm kind of a, you know, I've always had like a little thing in my heart for Barry Goldwater and you know, McCain took his spot. And to me, it's like I'm a big Barry Goldwater guy because he was the epitome of what a true conservative is. And I'm not even saying I'm a conservative, but he was very libertarian in his ideology. But what is your opinion of Barry Goldwater? I uh, also am uh, pretty fond of him. He actually had a pretty uh, frosty relationship with McCain, much to McCain's kind of annoyance and even hurt. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in fact, that's what it says something about McCain's ideology that he didn't really understand. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, McCain was McCain was a carpetbagger. He'd lived in uh, in uh, in and around D.C. all of his life. He'd sort of married into a district, chose where he was going to live at the last minute based on a retiring congressman, all these kinds of things, and didn't have that kind of Mister Conservative uh, Western spirit um, in his blood. He kind of developed some of it in terms of cultural fondness, but certainly not. Right. Of the ideology. For me, the question with Goldwater is, and it's an open question, and I don't know enough uh, about it, uh, to be honest. Like, he was himself, by all accounts, not interested in bigots at all and was not uh, bigoted himself. Uh, he famously said, no, you know, I don't care. Not at all. We no. can have, uh, uh, you don't have to be straight in the military. You just have to shoot straight. Uh, and he said <laughs> that, that was not, <laughs> yeah, that's good. That was yeah. not a popular phrase uh, among Democrats, let alone Republicans. But the uh, the the elephant in the room is his opposition to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and oh, the political yeah. culture that that helped create. Uh, I think it created an association of libertarianism in a lot of people's minds with kind of an, a more atavistic, backwards-looking, anti-civil rights view that he himself 
uh, I believe, uh, uh, did not share. He did uh, but it, no. But it's a but it's a very interesting kind of cultural political uh, yes. question. Yes, uh, and I think that there's still some some uh, some legacies of those uh, associations that are uh, are difficult to process and digest. Mm. So people often joke about libertarians fighting other libertarians on what a libertarian is. So I really wanted to talk to you and ask you, what has caused the biggest uproars or debates among reason followers? And how would you describe small L libertarianism and what it entails? Is there a litmus test? (laughs) No, uh, but also know that I in particular and also reason to the frustration of many, uh, are not uh, interested in the litmus test game. We don't want to be the libertarian cops. The magazine, they made a decision early on in its tenure. It's been around since 1968. Uh, and they were covering a lot of internal, like the Libertarian Party started in 1971, and they were covering a lot of that uh, at the time. Uh, and they had, a, 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 I think, like a newsletter associated with a, the a Libertarian Party politics. Yeah. And and what and what do you know? It turned out a lot of people got really mad at each other all the time about this. So it was a big uh, headache because libertarians like to fight one, one another. But it was also a gut check for the magazine. They said, hey, look, are we the in-house magazine of libertarianism or are we an outward facing magazine that takes libertarian notions and ideas and sensibilities and um, converses and interacts with a broader outside fallen world sure. in media and politics? And th- they chose the latter. And, and that's one of the reasons that probably attracted me to, to reason to begin with. So the sensibilities um, uh, uh, definitely overlapped. So um, long way of saying that, uh, no, I do not relish uh, and I reject uh, almost every attempt of people to say, OK, well, that person's not libertarian, right? We have to exclude them. We have to do the John Birch Society thing with the, with the Buckleyites way back then. And like, you know, if you want to do that, if that's what you want to do with your time, Great. Um, but that's not my particular uh, project. I would define small libertarianism. My, my colleague and co-author, Nick Gillespie, of, often describes uh, libertarianism as more of an adjective than a noun, by which he means mm. sort of like a sensibility. Um, you just want um, your, your preference at any given time is to have choice, not to have top down control, to have experimentation, not diktat, and to actively uh, enjoy, participate, help popularize or whatever, uh, the, the notion of freedom as opposed to not. You root for it. In uh, American terms, uh, uh, another colleague of mine, Brian uh, Doherty, he wrote a great book, Radicals for Capitalism, mm. which is kind of a history of the modern libertarian uh, movement. And he had a line there in the beginning when he's sort of defining terms. He's just, just like, you know what? It's in your Jefferson. It's just kind of right, right there. It's built right. into the American idea that which governs least governs best or close to it and uh, let people pursue their own happiness as they see fit and not you know, hit the happiness goals that are set by uh, government. So yeah, yeah, libertarians fight all the time. Uh, part of it is they're clawing for market share. Part of it is that you know it's yeah, a, a lot of people enter this tent through the doors, and I'm a little mangle all metaphors, so just forget mm-hmm. it, of philosophy, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the, Phil, I, this I is why we're here. All. This is why we're here, because of the philosophy. Yeah. We're not here because of the politics. We like the philosophy, and we want to transfer it over into maybe making some changes politically. 
Yes. Uh, and so and so it makes sense that people would argue over philosophy. Sure. You know, the Austrians want to argue with the Chicagoans, the Hayekians, with mm-hmm. the, the Misesians. Uh, I once uh, and this is hilarious because I'm a college dropout, but I once gave a, 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 a keynote. I should say a college flunky. I didn't drop out. Expel. <laughs> uh, <laughs> such great, was yeah. my performance. Hot. <laughs> yes, it's just like getting a bunch of Star Trek guys into a room. All right, I mean, we're going to argue about how big, you know, engine was in the in Enterprise. You know, like we can have these debates, and we're going off the original diagrams, dude. But um, really quick though, how did you get involved with Reason? I mean, I, I'm kind of interested in who you are because you kind of have like this interesting past. I've I've been hearing things about you. How did you get involved in Reason, and what was the progression of your career? Like, did you start out at the bottom? Were you like the lonely guy at the bottom, like, hey, how's it going? I want to interview you. Like, what we're doing now, right? So, and is that how you got kicked out of college? Like, how did you get kicked out of college, (laughs) Um, and how did you end up with this? I mean, there's a connection. There's a connection between uh, journalism and uh, getting kicked out of college because uh, (laughs) my, I don't know, first month in college, I, I. And a friend of mine from high school uh, screwed up the courage to walk through the doors of the uh, daily campus newspaper, which okay. was daily uh, and was at the time one of the top five in the country. I would argue even the best, but of course I would. Uh, and <laughs> uh, and so I started working there and I'm like within you know a week, I'm like, yep, this is it. I got it. Uh, we don't, we, this is what I want to do. And, um, you know, I was, uh, I, I became the assistant news editor. I wrote all that. I spent all my time in the newspaper. I just didn't go to class. So that's where I got my start. That's 33 years ago. And I've been doing journalism, you know, with a couple of detours, but every year ever since. And because I was a, a an expelly, um, and I, I had to figure out what to do with my life at the end of my kind of four year college time. Um, because the last two years of college. I still uh, worked at the newspaper, but in a, uh, they had a couple of professional jobs that were actually paid well, unlike the student uh, <laughs> jobs, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people like the advertising director. And for me, I was the uh, the typesetter to talk about it, something that doesn't really exist anymore. Wow. But uh, I would oversee the paste up staff. I would do the typesetting on the computers and work a unisetter machine and halftone camera and all this kind of stuff. And uh, I would see to it that, that the sketched out vision of what the papers look like would be pasted up and put on flats and driven to the printer every day. Very so I, cool. Very I, cool. I was able to make a bunch of money compared to my, uh, my colleagues, but I was trying to figure out what to do with my life when my contract uh, up in June of 1990. And so I had set aside the uh, sort of winter break, fall and winter break to like figure it out. All right, what am I going to do? Interesting. And, uh, and there was a, there was, it was not a very good time for uh, journalism. There's beginnings of a recession happening then. All of my options look kind of grim. And as I was sitting there kind of pondering, uh, you couldn't help but glance uh, at CNN and think back what's happening in Thanksgiving and Christmas of 1989. Well, communism is collapsing. Mm. Huh. And in some places, uh, including the place that I eventually moved nine months later, led by students who are my age and like the same music. Uh, and that was part of the reason for wanting okay, to overthrow so communists. We got to know what the music is. What is the music? Uh, Rockabilly, I mean, right? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, no, like, uh, in their case, Velvet Underground. It's one of the reasons why it's called the Velvet Revolution. Is there that, you go. Uh, okay. That, uh, this is a long story that I won't bore you with, but like part of the reason that Václav Havel got in the game of becoming a dissident in the first place was defending a bunch of derelict rock musicians who were playing a bunch of VU covers um, back in the day. And, <laughs> right. Uh, and uh, so anyways, I ended up uh, saying, okay, I'll just take a one-way ticket over there and see what's going on. And that led me and some friends from the college paper to start 
uh, the region's first independent post-communist English language newspaper in Prague. Um, did that for four years, moved to Budapest and was a managing editor of another paper there for three years, worked for UPI, uh, kind of the moribund wire service, married a French gal. We decided, okay, what are we going to do? Uh, she was also a journalist. Now it's a private investigator. Uh, and we thought that the next obvious step is to move to Cuba to try to uh, <laughs> uh, cover the collapse of communism in real wow. time instead of the uh, instead of the, uh, you know, the post uh, communist things. I think applying what we had learned and also being able to wow. um, enjoy better weather and uh, watch baseball games. Uh, and that was uh, that didn't really work out. Uh, we lasted a couple of months and then sort of flopped back to the United States, to the Southern California, where I'm from. And. Then I basically applied for, you know, I was approaching 30 uh, that summer and uh, I applied to every single newspaper, pretty much daily newspaper in the state of California. And they all rejected me, uh, including like, hey, you know, come back when you get some real clips, kid. Uh, yeah. like, I started my own newspaper. But it, that's kind of the same thing with everything. Like me personally, man, I'm afraid, like especially now with job applications, right? Like everyone wants to know, like, give us your Facebook information. I'm like, oh, I'm afraid because they're going to see some crazy libertarian out there and I'm going to be pegged for life. And they're going to, I'm not hiring this guy. He's an enemy of the state. Like, what do I do? You know, like, that's I, my question to you, man. I don't, I don't think that that's going to be a problem, actually. I think what would be a problem is, you know, when they see that uh, you've been doing Pepe the Frog memes and <laughs> participating in Proud Boys rallies or whatever. Or, you know, you have a, a Me Too mark against you or... or your youthful exuberance is probably not going to be about politics that people want to get you. It's like, did you post facto violate what is now a social norm or taboo? And uh, and that's a problem. I think people now compared to when I compared to 1998, certainly. I mean, back then it was still a super top down industry. You worked your way up in the local paper, then the bigger paper and the bigger paper. Um, the Internet blew that apart. And I was happy to uh, participate in the Internet blowing that apart. I remember um, when everyone was rejecting me, the LA Times uh, came to me. <laughs> I love, this. Uh, I love said, your humor. I love it, man. <laughs> uh, said that you don't exactly fit in the little boxes that we like to have for people. That's yeah. like a direct quote. Uh, wow. And it was with uh, a tremendous fun, schadenfreude, whatever, that seven years later, the same institution, you know, came uh, asking me at a much higher level than I was <laughs> than I was uh, first knocking on their door, to be sure. And that was largely because of the track record that I had created, uh, mostly online, but um, just, you know, kind of entrepreneurially out there. I, I made my own career and then they acknowledged it and had to come to me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the Internet has has been great for that. At the same time, it is also obviously that plus a lot of institutional mismanagements at all legacy media places has really shrunk down the power of the once powerful institutions. And so the, the profession is in this kind of crazy flux. Um, but I'm, I'm more optimistic about it uh, than most people who work in the industry. Nice. So I have a quote from an interview you did in 2011, where you were asked about pop culture shaping people's beliefs and where you talked about higher levels of tolerance. And you said, quote, perhaps most importantly, we now constantly repackage and reuse culture to suit our whims, which means we are less passive receptacles and more what the press thinker Jay Rosen calls the people formerly known as the audience. Controlling the means of cultural production is a powerful and fun development. 
which impacts we are only beginning to vaguely understand, end quote. I'd really love to get your thoughts on this eight years later and ask if you've noted any direction changes, positive or negative, and what they've been. And Matt's well, probably I mean, sitting, there, sitting there thinking, I don't remember saying that. It sounds good, uh, though. Yeah, no, I, I remember thinking it, at least. Uh, it sounds like me. Um, uh, you know, uh, what we're doing right now, the three of us, uh, speaks to that, right? Like the podcast revolution is very much uh, like what, you know, I kind of participated in the second wave of what we used to call the blogosphere. So okay. after September 11th, um, a lot of people got into kind of current affairs blogging, right. um, right. uh, and there was an explosion of it. And it was a very creative, fermenty type of time. Seeing that now with podcasts, and there was and the and the audience for them really, really intimate and passionate. I mean, they would send me cookies like that. You know, like wow. just, I was, love it. And, That's cool. That's and, cool, but, man. Like. But podcasts are very much the same way. I do um, a couple of them. I do Reason Podcasts and then one called The Fifth Column with uh, Camille Foster and Michael Moynihan. And uh, The Fifth Column, uh, because on – which we've been doing for about three and a half years, one of our early shows, we, we tape it at night after we're done with our work day. Um, one of our earlier shows, we, yeah, we might have had a, a, a couple, three drinks. And by the end, it was <laughs> – <laughs> 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 Isn't and that funny, thought, okay, though? That's, that's how it always that, goes, buddy. That's, that's how it always goes. embarrassing. Yeah. Uh, you know, let's release it, but maybe let's take it down. No, everyone loved it so much that they began mailing us booze, which nice. they haven't stopped doing. I've drank more whiskey – because our listeners of that podcast and it's and part of it is that um, people have a real like that that creative kind of ferment and and very personalized approach towards media is so different than the usual kind of here we are having sure. talking heads time on MSNBC and you're going to exactly know, you know, my position before I open my mouth. Um, people respond to that. So. Yes, that's great. And part of that repackaging allows us, in theory, to become more savvy uh, consumers of media. Mm -hmm. I think I was probably more optimistic about how that would affect people writ large. I think in many cases, people have chosen not to be savvy consumers. They've, mm -hmm. they've chosen to weaponize uh, more sure. than understand. Uh, and, and that hurts my journalistic heart. But uh, I, th I still think that there's a lot of of interesting experimentation out there and um, and that the uh, the institutions themselves still 20 years later um, haven't really come to terms with how do you renegotiate your own sense of authority? Right. Uh, why should people listen to you? Why should when you get your serious voice on, why should they feel like uh, they need to get their serious ears on? And, and I mean, that's an ongoing it's art. It's not science. But that should have been an early response. And one of the things that I did when I was at the LA Times is try to do that. How can we break down the wall between us, uh, institution, and you, lowly reader, and stop looking down on people and start like inviting them in? Um, and it's very hard. It's, it, it, it goes contrary to everything that the industry was doing for 50 years after World War II, um, and they're still uh, not doing it very well. Mr. Welch, really quick, before we wrap this up for the commercial break, in two to three minutes, professionally, Right. I'm speaking not like amateurly, professionally. What has been your greatest experience, though, working at Reason Magazine? I mean, I mean, I'm sure you've met lots of cool people. You've done some cool stories. You've edited cool stories and you're a journalist. Like what has been your greatest experience? What was the highlight of your career so far? I was the uh, was I the editor in chief when Corey May got out of prison. 
Um, I might have been. I might not have been. Uh, I certainly worked on one of Radley Balco's uh, early stories, uh, a couple of them, having to do with Corey May, who was a guy who shot a cop and was put on death row. As a result, the cop uh, was part of a wrong door, no knock raid, if I have the details mm-hmm. correct. And mm-hmm. it was like, in, uh, you know, late in the morning uh, or, you know, it was late, late in the evening. And on a very basic level, when we do work that cause people to go from uh, – living in a cage and facing death to uh, walking free. Um, that's really why you are here, brothers and sisters. This is, mm-hmm. uh, and even, I mean, it's not me that, that did this. I was, I was right. a very small uh, part of that process. We did uh, under my editorial tenure. Uh, and again, a lot of this was <laughs> laundered through, um, through uh, Radley uh, Balco and Jacob Solom, uh, who I had uh, put the issue together, but we did this 2011 uh, feature or package, basically doubled the size of the normal magazine. It was called Criminal Injustice. And so this is 2011. This is three years before Ferguson. Uh, a lot of the stuff that now you see Bernie Sanders coming out with talking about criminal justice reform. Right. Reason has been talking and covering it for 50 years, but really uh, heavily over the last 15. And I um, definitely uh, I helped that process, even though it's not me to take credit for it. But, uh, but that's what I feel a sense of, uh, of personal pride. Yeah. You do cool things. You meet cool people. Uh, it's for me, it's really fun to do stuff like, you know, I helped create a, a TV show, uh, called the independence with Kennedy and, and Camille Foster That's awesome. uh, for That's 15 years, 15 months. It was super great. All that stuff is fun awesome. on a personal yeah. level and thrilling, but like getting a dude out of jail who was on death row as an institution, uh, that, matters. Uh, so that's what I'll take the most pride in. That is awesome. Hey guys, make sure you check out Free Talk Live, America's fastest growing number one pro-liberty radio program, Free Talk Live, on 190 plus radio stations coast to coast, and it's pro-liberty every issue, every time. So check out freetalklive.com. Again, that's freetalklive.com. Anyways, this is Johnny Rocket, always launching ideas, and we're talking to Matt Welch, and we'll be right back. Rock and roll. Bam. Listener, chances are some of you are business owners, entrepreneurs, or have a product that you're dying to bring to market. Well, there's something that you all have in common. You need a killer brand, website, and an all-around awesome design to stand out from your competition. Well, I have the solution for you. Invisible Hand Design. So if your company's image could use a hand, go ahead and reach out to them. Right. They're even offering Blast Off listeners a 20% discount on their first project. Book your conversation with them at invisiblehanddesign.com forward slash blast off. Hey, this is Blast Off with Charlie Rocket, and I'm here with my rancher, Miss Rayleigh Lightheart. What a fun show. This is great. I love listening to somebody who can talk. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's great because we don't have to do. Right. You know, it's like a guest who can talk about stuff it makes our job that much easier. Yeah, and it's actually really fun to listen to, so this is great. And it's really fun. It's interesting. It's it's a cool history about Reason Magazine. And mm-hmm. seriously, Matt, thank you so much for being here. It's awesome. You have a great personality. And, and, and a lot it's of fun. A, it's an honor to have you here. All right, so what we do here on the second segment, it's called Rocket Fire. What we do on Rocket Fire, sir, is I'm going to ask you a series of 10 questions. These questions will be politically related. And if you can answer these questions between 30 to 60 seconds, that'd be badass. Mr. Welch, are you ready to play? Rocket fire. I am ready to play. Let's go. Question one. What do you think is the most important political issue at the moment? 
it's it's macro. It's not pressing. Uh, it okay. is, but yet it is the most important. I think. Uh, I think a hundred years from now, we will say, did this moment beginning in 2015, 2016, Donald Trump is part of this. Brexit is part of this. Was this the moment that the the post World War II kind of order of of gradual tariff reductions, a gradual and then really sharp alleviation of poverty, uh, increased international cooperation. Is that the time when that broke down and went mm-hmm. in the other direction? Um, I don't know. I mean, it's certainly uh, a pause. It's a sideways thing. It's a detour into kind of nationalism. It's a correction against people who sort of dismissed democratic uh, concerns of constituencies who felt like they didn't have uh, say in how their affairs are being conducted. It's a lot of things, but um, it will, I think, be seen as the most important. And then also, what does that do to the political cultures uh, broadly uh, in uh, in this country with what we used to call the West. Um, is uh, it, it feels like we're experiencing a pretty sharp kind of degradation of political culture right. and norms uh, that's going to a nasty place where people are being kind of demonized collectively based on immutable character characteristics or, or or just like simple binary choices that they might have made. Um, so it feels like it can go in a bad place, particularly on the cusp of what will probably be a global recession. Um, so, but I think that that's the broad, uh, the broad, uh, most important thing is what's going to replace the, uh, the 70 years after between 1940, let's say eight and, uh, and 2016. I don't think we know that. Right on that question. Too. Do you think people's political views change over time? Uh, sure. Uh, I, I'm not a determinist about stuff. Uh, I know that probably, you know, the, the, people like to say, well, I can tell you what your politics are based on the politics of your parents. And you know what? You can make broad generalizations based on that and mm-hmm. say that there's a probability of X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. but I am absolutely not a determinist. We all have our individual choices. My politics have been largely the same. I've changed after, you know, repeated exposure to libertarians over the years. Um, but also just, uh, events on the ground have caused me to reconsider a couple of larger, uh, issues. And I think, I think that it's normal. Um, and I, and, you know, people certainly change what they profess to be important and what they believe in who people who, um, are strong, uh, loyalists, uh, within America's two party system. If they maintain that strong loyalty throughout, they're going to be changing their professed opinions because my God, we have a, a protectionist Republican president. Mm-hmm. Um, and I agree. Didn't, yeah. used, didn't used to be a protectionist party. Um, so yeah, they changed their beliefs. They just didn't change their, their tribal, uh, association. That's right. That's right. Many admirers of Ron, Ronald Reagan credit him and his policies with the fall of communism. Is that claim justified in your opinion? It's overstated for okay. sure. Okay. The first people to uh, give credit to for the collapse of communism are the people who did the collapsing. Uh, the people, especially uh, uh, in the kind of the satellite states of the Soviet uh, empire uh, who pushed back in Czechoslovakia and Poland sure. and Hungary right, right. and elsewhere, they 
seized the day. Uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, who I despise with every ounce of my being, deserves credit uh, for not playing too heavy a hand during the imperial rollback, although you can some Lithuanians might have a word or two uh, with you about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, he could have reacted differently and he did not. Ronald Reagan absolutely deserves some credit uh, for that as well. He identified I think he, he was correctly identified uh, the Soviet Union as an evil empire and got snickered at uh, widely, including by me at the time. I, I was going to school, UC Santa Barbara, and Santa Barbara's where the Western White House was. So Reagan was all around us, and we all hated him like good college students. Um, but you know what? <laughs> after having as part of the lived, narrative, right? Yeah. After having lived in what uh, was part of that empire, sure was evil. I mean, it was evil as hell, and. Yeah. He uh, helped uh, negotiate very important nuclear arms reductions over the griping of a lot of conservatives, by the way. Right. Thought he was a commie sellout. He didn't go to war. Uh, and which is something that I credit both him and Dwight Eisenhower, and both of whom were absolutely beat up again by a lot of Republicans yep. and yep. conservatives and, and uh, anti-commie types. Yep. Um, you know they didn't they didn't move in in 1956 in Hungary or 1968 and 69 in Czechoslovakia or 1981 81 in Poland. They could have. They didn't. That was smart because you want people to own their own revolutions rather That's than right. have you America impose it from abroad. But yet you can still express. A lot of sympathy. Um, you can be constantly negotiating uh, for the the plight of humans. For instance, the Jews in in uh, living in the Soviet Union. Uh, we got a couple hundred thousand uh, into America at the time, which is a great humanitarian gesture. I wish we still believed in that type of work uh, as a country, which we kind of don't now, uh, which is sad. Um, so yes, he deserves a lot of credit, but it's it's pretty myopic and narcissistic to say we won the Cold War. Yeah, Reagan. Yes, I'm with you. Um, you, you can admire him. You can admire him and, and admire his contributions uh, and his lifelong or career-long passion about it. Uh, you can also uh, say, like, he took that to bad places in policies in Central America and, and South Africa. So uh, it's not like his record spotless. All right. Question four. More and more people are turning to the ideas of socialism. Do you think there is a lack of economic education and therefore why people are going that route? Yes. Um, I mean, it's an, that's an evergreen tweet there. Um, uh, you know, people, <laughs> the, the, the economic education has never been anybody's uh, strong suit, really. Um, I right. think it's also a generational thing. You know, I'm 51 years old. Uh, I was 21 when the wall fell. So it's kind of hard for anyone younger than me to have a sense that we did. Like, my God, this Cold War is going to last forever. Um, you know, history right. never changes. That's what we thought up until the moment history changed. And also that, you know, you can live in a time when there's an entire huge part of the the global map that's just kind of an undifferentiated black blob. Like no one knows what mm-hmm. happens there. Uh, yeah, it's over. So it's and, and you know, that was a absolutely kind of structured so much of of society, politics, culture uh, in America in a way that's just impossible, really, for even a 40-year-old to grasp right now. Uh, most people who are you know, 35 and, and under or 40 and under, what are they going to be thinking about? They're thinking about 9-11 uh, and they're thinking about the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they're thinking about Trump and and, and related uh, uh, discontents. So uh, it's it, it, we're living at a time when there's great disillusionment with uh, decisions made by uh, the elite. 
fleet. Uh, it's kind of reminiscent of the early uh, 70s in that regard, after the best and brightest generation really screwed the pooch. Um, and so because there isn't an, a, a ready-made uh, boogity-boogity story about socialism, aside from Venezuela, uh, it lacks the the punch. And so I think people can flock, the younger people like to flock to it because it seems kind of punk rock in, in some level. Like, oh, look, hey, there's look no the old punk rock, man. I'm with you on that, but it is. And the then- old... Right. The, the olds old get the vapors rock. when we when we say socialism. So let's say socialism because we like it when the olds get the vapors. I I, <laughs> I totally get that. Um, and it's, it is interesting when you when you uh, delve into and start uh, asking more complicated uh, uh, questions among people. Like, okay, you say you like socialism. So what do you think about the state uh, controlling the means of production? Like, oh God, no. Right. That's, that's we can't terrible. even go to the goddamn so, DMV without getting having a hassle. You know, like goddamn, they you know. No, the state doesn't need to be involved in that. I think I think there's a, a soft, a kind of a soft socialism there. It's real and and it has uh, impacts. And there's there's also a kind of a never been tried feel right. among people uh, from the kind of the Bernie Sanders set. Uh, <laughs> but I don't see it as like a uh, as a resurgence of like uh, some red beret types. Rock and roll. All right, question five. Why might big corporations be preferable to big government? Uh, I'm not a big fan of big in general, uh, but the best part of that big corporations is that they usually can't throw you in jail. Uh, that's not a small thing. They can't garnish your wages. They can't, um, you know, make you work until May 13 or whatever, uh, before good, you start owning, owning your own money. Um, and they go bankrupt. Their job is to try to, uh, make you happy enough to give them money or, uh, to try to sort of extract it out of you uh, some way. But usually the ones who end up punitively trying to extract it from you are so uh, despised and resented by customers that they eventually go out of business the moment that the customers can root around them and go someplace else. So they can rise and fall in ways that the state and government generally uh, cannot and does not. Uh, so uh, they are impermanent. Um, so if Good point. Uh, I, Good I don't, point. I don't want to be ru- ruled by anybody, but they can't, they can't control my life. That's right. That's right, man. Good point. Question six. Are there some overlaps with, oh, I'm going to say this. Are there some overlaps with the progressives and libertarians in our belief system? <laughs> sure. Oh, I mean, God, I'm sorry I had to say this. I feel dirty. I'm going to wash myself. I'm going to take a shower should. right after that Let's question. Let's the answer. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Belief systems might be a pretty strong word, but like uh, certainly overlaps in terms of of policy. And okay. Look no further than uh, than uh, Bernie Sanders's criminal justice package. Right? He's against civil asset forfeiture. Okay. okay. Uh, he's against cash bail. Sounds pretty good. Uh, uh, you know, he wants to end the drug war. Okay, I'm I'm with you. Where are we going with this? Yeah. Uh, and then we deviate when he want. You know, his for opening paragraph is about private prisons as if that's a widespread uh, driver of much of anything, which it really is not. But, you know, and he wants to throw a bunch of money at various things, which uh, a lot of libertarians would not uh, necessarily agree with. But, yes, of course, there's overlap there. The You know, there used to be and there probably still is some latent trace of uh, anti-war uh, pro civil liberties, uh, you know, kind of anti-surveillance sure. yeah. state uh, mm-hmm. feeling on the progressive left. And and that's always going to uh, be something that libertarians uh, get and understand. Um, so, yeah, there's uh, there's general overlap. My approach to this, and Nick and I wrote this in our book, is, you know, everyone wants to kind of 
do all or nothing with everyone around them all the time. It's sort of a weird sure. human, like tribal thing. I really the opposite of it. And that's partly why I've never, you know, joined a political party. It's easier for me to think in those terms, but like, okay, we will work together on A, B, and C, and we will okay. fight viciously over D, E, and F. That's fine. That's cool. I mean, let's, let's figure out a way to, uh, you know, for crying out loud, we got Donald Trump to pass the, and push for the First Step Act. Mm -hmm. uh, that was not something that one would have predicted as he was uh, campaigning on law and order and all this kind of stuff. Um, but like, look, get a victory, uh, pocket it, uh, work with people on t absolutely temporary single issue coalitions and then move on to the next fight. I think that's all well and good. All right. Question seven. It is often said that elections are lost and never won. Do you agree? And can you think of any examples in recent history or in the world? Elections are lost and never won. No, people win elections. Come on. Come okay. On. I mean, you, 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 uh, you, especially like in a primary setting, someone's got to win that damn thing. Um, you know, you have a field of 23 people or whatever the number it, I is. Think with, it was more, I think it was more philosophical in the sense that, you know, people just vote for the other guy. Right. So th well, th that's what they're saying. Like, I hate that person. I'm not really voting for this person. Like, that's that's what I think it means. Yes. Yeah, I think that that we live in a time where that tendency is on the rise. Uh, definitely. It's really hold your nose, negative polarization. Um, it's it's my antipathy towards uh, those bad people um, is why I have to vote for these right. people who I hate Hillary. I'm going to vote for Trump. Yes. Uh, and that we're in a bad spiral with that um, it, because it doesn't it, it doesn't seem to be getting better. And the more the, the larger the federal government gets, the more we get president focused, executive branch focused on everything, the the less Congress does the more that like the legislature just absolutely abdicates its basic duty of sure. like I don't know passing a budget, let alone doing anything. So everything, <laughs> right, all yeah. politics is presidential. Right. Uh, you know, uh, Elizabeth Warren has a thousand plans. Once she's president, you would think that uh, yeah, did you legislate also? Um, uh, and so that makes the stakes so much higher at all times, and it, and, it, and it drives a bigger amount of fear in your heart. Like my God, the the bad guys might take a hold of this incredibly powerful thing uh, and use it at a time to basically punish their enemies openly. And I mean, uh, Trump talks about that kind of openly. Like, you know, that yeah. we should use government to punish enemies. And uh, and, you know, since we have a two party system and it's very much kind of a pendulum swing and and, and, the, and the each side learns from each other, it's bad tendencies or it's, you know, or, or successful, temporarily successful tendencies. They start to ape each other. So I'm afraid that we're in the spiral where each side is going to pretty openly use government as a tool to punish the other guys, which then makes and even more high stakes, even more negatively po polarized. Um, I don't know how we're going to snap out of that. Uh, it's making me almost pessimistic for the first time, I think, in my life. There you have it. If our society did become more privatized, what evidence is there that the least privileged wouldn't be forgotten about? Yeah, I'm on your team on this. So I'm just no, saying, no, like, no, I'm no, just asking in regards to like the soccer mom Cindy out there who doesn't know what the hell we're talking about. She's like, what about the poor people? Because all these rich right. people are just evil bastards, you know? Well, uh, so here's here's one way that I look about this and, and look at this. And, and, and it is definitely informed by my experience of living in Central Europe in the 1990s. I mean, mm -hmm. when I first moved to Prague, the average salary was, which I know very well because I was 
paid it. Uh, <laughs> uh, I paid myself it was a hundred bucks a month. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, right. That's not a lot of money. Uh, and so th- these places were poor. They had been devastated by uh, communism, the environment, the the mentality, the, everything about it. The industries were just, just hollowed out. So they had all this sense of destruction and they were going from one system to another. Um, how do you do that? And what does it mean? And what do people say about it? I remember at the time Noam Chomsky, who was uh, uh, beloved by many uh, progressives and some non-progressives as well, uh, was saying things like, well, of course, because he always uses the words, of course, the phrase, um, of course, Japanese, you know, the, the, the Czechs will do the bidding of Japanese capital uh, in a global race to the bottom. All right. That's one theory. Right. Um, now look at how much money Czechs are making. And they're, like, they're, they're not having the greatest time in the world. They're having a lot of problems. They've had corruption. Uh, Russia, sadly, has come in and started to infiltrate their, their world in ways that I never would have thought when I lived there. But um, they're making a lot more than 100 bucks a month. The poor people who everyone assumed would be left aside, shredded, and forgotten by the privatizers right. um, ended up doing pretty well uh, compared to where they were before. What has happened? What is the most miraculous story over the last 30 years of our existence, it is 1 billion people being lifted out of extreme poverty, largely, though yes. not only in Income China mobility. and India. Income mobility. That's the that thing. I, I am attracted to capitalism and a more limited government and the rule of law by which I mean, because that can sound creepy to some people, just by which I mean there are regular rules and they apply to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that system, um, I, I'm attracted to that precisely because it is better for poor people. That is my motivation. It is not because it's better for rich people. I don't care about rich people. Uh, I, I know a couple. I would love to be one. It must be fun. I'd love to not like be in my uh, my hot uh, uh, Brooklyn apartment in, in August. I'd like to be one of the people who'd be out, you know, gallivanting in the Hamptons. Right. right. But um, uh, no, that is the whole attraction uh, to begin with. It's not evidence that every person who is poor is going to be better under a system that is more laissez-faire um, because they're not. You can't make any uh, guarantees necessarily, but you can say that the preponderance of evidence, nobody uh, had these records. And this is happening also in Africa. It's not just uh, Southeast Asia. Nobody got that new prosperity and that sort of alleviation from poverty by uh, saying, you know what? We need to have more of a Bernie Sanders-like agenda. We yeah, need to... Yeah. Uh, we need to, I mean, Bono is out there saying, hey, look, you know, what, what is the best thing that's helped Africa? Free trade. Yeah. Uh, you no, know, he did much, say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like at the, the UN, the United Nations uh, you know, Millennium uh, uh, Project, uh, which Tony Blair helped spearhead. And it was like, how can we get rid of extreme poverty? Um, and they, they were like primed to say, well, the best way to do it is to give a ton of money to poor countries, which rich countries always love to do um, because then you can attach strings or whatever or feel good about yourself. Uh, It had to uh, basically say, look, we're doing this way ahead of schedule and it's not because we did anything. It's because uh, the trading system uh, got freer uh, and governments got less cumbersome. That's right. uh, So to me, get uh, it is because it helps poor people. That makes it attractive. All right. We're running out of time on these questions, but question nine. do you think it's our goal as a libertarian to actually get rid of legislation and laws instead of just trying to change them or create new ones to correct for bad ones? I love there to be more getting rid of and that we've Bam. lost that, that, that tendency. Um, 
I mean, uh, Thomas Massey, who is uh, who I like uh, the, uh, from Kentucky, is libertarian leaning guy. Uh, every uh, session he introduces, like, let's abolish the Department of Education. Right. One line thing. That yeah. would be great. That would be fun. People have been talking about that. For, I mean, actually, most Republicans have stopped talking about that, which which is sad. But like you don't get rid. That doesn't mean you get rid of federal spending on education that because that is based on an underlying law that was passed in 1965 or 66. Sure. Go after that law. Um, that's what they did in the 1970s under both Carter and Reagan uh, when there was a real uh, era of deregulation. They're like, you know what? We need to I'm actually you- de- deauthorize these things. That's we, right. You know, that's right. Either write legislation or just like euthanize these places uh, and and change things around. We need to get back into that spirit as opposed to just saying, well, when I'm in charge, I'm going to get rid of the regulations uh, because the next guy is going to be in charge and he's going to put it back in there. Um, and that's, again, this sort of executive branch isization, which is not a word. Um, of, that's cool. Uh, we, can, we can roll with that. Governance, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, uh, which, is, which is super unhealthy. It's you not, know what? It's I not have a, really quick. I really respect that answer. 100% respect that answer because a lot of people don't. A lot of people don't think that way. And that's a very, very true libertarian perspective. And I a lot of respect for you on question nine. Question 10. Reason Magazine has historically been a moderate-leaning libertarian source of free markets and new ideas. Has there been any tension in the past with the Mises Institute's radical libertarianism, and if so, has your opinions of certain actors within the Mises Institute changed since you've met our man Tom Woods? Uh, I, I people have a hard time wrapping their heads around such things. Okay, but I don't, and we don't spend a lot of time thinking about any particular organization sure. one way or the other. Okay. I mean, we work in, we have a, a, a large office in DC. We rub shoulders with Cato people a lot and have them write for the magazine a lot. We'd sort of see them around. Sure. Uh, there's other, other groups that we interact with a lot just for whatever reason, the students for Liberty, young Americans for Liberty. Um, uh, for example, um, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. I think a lot of the uh, kind of uh, bitter divisions and the assumed uh, kind of wars between people, uh, they they tend to be either one-sided or just kind of imagined as much as anything else from outsiders. There's a great piece I would commend people to read uh, by Brian Doherty from about eight, nine years ago with under the headline, uh, A Tale of Two Libertarianisms. And it kind of gets into the right. the Austrian school, Chicago school split. Yep. Uh, and I've also the, the, yeah. there's, there's, you know, there's philosophical reasons for this. There's comportmental reasons. Like uh, certain people who are attracted to X style of libertarians tend to be more like X in their personalities. But uh, reason has always been, you know, we have – both, you know, we have we have uh, our editor in chief for crying out loud is a goddamn anarchist. Uh, I certainly am not, uh, uh, and and we're all kind of fine with one another. You know, that's, like that's great. it's not it's it's yeah. not necessarily that everybody at Reason is a squishy moderate. I'm totally the squish of the operation, <laughs> and uh, at, I love it. Totally, at least totally you're honest, man. You know what though? You know Tom Woods. Honestly, it was really really great. I, I have to give props to you. Thank you very much. I mean, like Tom is a, you know, he's been on this show numerous times and you know what? Tom's a good dude and having him on Reason TV or Reason on on YouTube, I watched the entire hour long interview that you had with him and hats off to you for doing that. Thank you very much, man, because it was a great thing about war and how it is. And 
Tom was the, the greatest guest you had on this. Uh, I mean, he is very adamant about anti-war. And you, you had a lot of courage to have Tom on there. And I really want to say thank you for doing that because it was fun. I mean, I, it's I, awesome. It, it seemed it seemed very normal and, and it was cathartic for a lot of uh, viewers and listeners out there in a way that I found pretty interesting. Uh, I, I enjoyed Tom's company a lot. Awesome. OK, and I'm just trying to think if there's some goofy ass question. Bonus question. If your shirt isn't tucked into your pants, are your pants yes. tucked into your shirt? No. <laughs> okay. Here's the target fire. Give it up for Matt Lowe. Bam. All right, Raylene. I am so sorry for being long-winded on this episode. No, that's but- great. All right. So, you know, with Trump, I laughed and laughed at the left for constantly calling him uh, Hitler over and over. It was just starting to devalue what Hitler is and what that means. And of course, I take issue with Trump's policies like tariffs and his support of the wall. And his exaggerations and personality are, are irritating. You know, I'm not really brave for for coming out against Trump. But with Trump's advocacy for red flag laws and joking about how he'd apply them, I'm not laughing anymore. So is Trump about to get more dangerous to our liberties and wallets? And what are your predictions regarding this administration? Well, I, I mean, he it was always uh, had very um, kind of uh, uh, insincere, shallow and uh, unknowledgeable beliefs having to do with constitutional rights mm-hmm. throughout uh, his career, throughout uh, even campaigning. You might recall there's a whole thing about him saying that the Kilo versus New London was a great decision. <laughs> uh, eminent domain is very important. Yeah, yeah. these little little guys trying to get in the middle of stuff, and they and they're really in the way. He was criticized pretty roundly. It was one of the biggest moments of criticism among conservatives and certainly libertarians at the time. And so he got his back up against the wall and said, "No, you're wrong. You know, you people who are criticizing me, like you're just you're just wrong about this." Uh, so he is. Despite the fact that um, there have been, I think, a fair number of uh, a pretty damn good and uh, libertarian-leaning or friendly uh, justices uh, mm-hmm. appointed, Neil Gorsuch, uh, chief among them on the Supreme Court, but guys like Don Willett, um, basically libertarian, um, uh, appointed sure. by the Trump administration, I don't think that that's necessarily because he wakes up in the morning thinking about originalism. Uh, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I think that people, uh, different organizations, the Federalist Society, among them, you know, they do what these, what all organizations, and I would include reason on this, even though we're less, um, you know, outcome oriented in terms of policy. But like, how do you influence what we have here in order to produce the result that you find more preferable? Uh, and so it, it tended to work out. I think he is who he is. There's a much bigger chance, particularly now that the NRA is going through its own organizational upheavals. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trump is like the perfect Nixon goes to China of gun control. Uh, <laughs> because the NRA went out of its way to back him really early, even though compared to the rest of the field, he was not des- not deserving of it. I mean, why oh, would man. you, why would you um, go with Donald Trump over Rand Paul? Well, you wouldn't <laughs> if, if you were a rights-based organization, right. but they, ha- they had something else in mind. And so now he's got them over a barrel. This right. is what happens to oh, any yeah. constituency that, uh, <laughs> that leaps early and often like, great, I don't have to pay attention to you ever again. Um, right. So I do not doubt that he will um, back uh, actively. In fact, there's a reporting over the last week that he's, he's spearheading some negotiations with uh, Senator Pat Toomey and some other people um, to try to have gun control-ish, uh, you know, red flags, bump stocks, uh, these kind of things mm-hmm. uh, done. Um, it wouldn't surprise me in the least bit. Um, whether that 
augurs for a new authoritarianism or something like that's uniquely worrying. For me, the biggest worry is not necessarily on an individual thing. It's just that throughout this tumultuous presidency, nothing bad yet really has happened. I'm not yeah. saying that that individuals haven't had their lives mangled. Of course they have. But like a, a, a globe shattering event, a huge crackdown by uh, by China against Hong Kong protesters, right. a big war, a big new war or a global recession. Bad things always happen. They happen to every president. They're going to happen. So how is someone with such a like a, a poor grasp, a wrong grasp on a lot of things and also a very erratic temperament? How is he going to respond then? I think that it's going to be ugly. So that's what I'm afraid of. Right on. All right, Raylene, prepare for landing. Oh, roger that, Johnny. Seatbelts and shoulder harnesses. Your body, your choice. Landing gear and downward expanders. NAP initiated. Anti-state superchargers. Defragged and woke. Landing lights and guest websites. Mr. Welch, give us your dot com, sir. At Matt Welch on Twitter. Go to Reason.com to find me. Anyways, I'm Matt Welch. Thank you so much, sir. It was awesome to have you here. Seriously, it was really fun. And uh, we're going to have even a better time on this after party. So stick around, guys, and rock and roll. We'll see you next week. This is Johnny Rocket signing off.